You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Let's pray as we uh, get in the Word this morning. Father, thank you for your Spirit that lives in each one of us. We pray that he will be our teacher today. Pray you'll give us eyes to see ears to hear, and and most of all, hearts and faith to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some were um, upset that we didn't pray for the 49ers today. Um, (laughs) I'm just, I really want the 49ers to win, but I'm just not sure theologically how that fits into praying, because I feel like there's chief fans who are praying for them, and I don't know how God sorts all that out, you know, just... uh, so I'm not going to add to the confusion. And uh, anyway, go Niners. All right. <laughs> In the Bible, there are times that God works very quietly. He works through circumstances, through people's choices and the consequences of those choices. And, and that's normally the way he works in our lives as well. But there are other times in the Bible when God is just obvious. He, awesome works of power, miracles, audible voices, clear leading, and, and he usually does that when he's starting something new in the lives of his people. And that's what happens in Luke chapter one. As after 400 years of silence, God speaks to a man named Zacharias. So let's read through this and uh, see what we can learn. Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. Luke writes, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Jeff reminded us last week that that Luke is a historian, and so he wants to fix the story in, in, in world history. Herod ruled Israel on behalf of Rome from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And this particular story occurs at the end of Herod's reign. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. At this point, there were 18,000 priests in Israel. They were divided into 24 divisions, which were divided into many orders, and each order was responsible for the worship in the temple two weeks out of the year. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Whenever you uh, see somebody described as righteous in the Bible, you need to remember righteous by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't mean they kept all the commandments perfectly because nobody does that. But they trusted in God. And because they trusted God, they loved him with all their hearts. They loved their neighbors, themselves. They kept the commandments of God. They offered sacrifices for all the times they didn't keep the commandments. This is a couple with a long track record of faithfulness. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. They've been unable to have children their whole marriage and now as they enter 
their later years, it seems like that great desire will never be fulfilled. In those days, being barren was considered a curse. But we know from the other passage here, or from the earlier, that it's not because of sin that she's barren. It's because God has a special plan. In fact, every time in the Bible that some woman is described as barren, whether it be Rebecca, the mother of Isaac, or the unnamed mother of Samson, or uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the next verse says, and God worked, and God, they get pregnant. And it always signals a new age in God's grace, and that's what's going to happen here. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. There were so many priests, it was impossible for all of them to serve. And so they had a lottery at the beginning of every two-week period. And this is uh, Zacharias' big day. This is the top of his career. He's, he's finally been, uh, at the end of his time, he's finally been chosen to go into the holy place and burn, uh, uh, burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the, of the court. Uh, the, I'm sorry, outside at the hour of the incense offering. The altar of incense stood right in the center of the holy place. And so uh, Zacharias' job was to go and put incense on top of this heated altar. And as it burned, he would prostrate himself in prayer while everybody outside the temple is praying. And it's at this time that God chooses to, to speak to him. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him, which is the normal response of people when they see an angel in the Bible. Nothing unusual here. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. I think by this time, Zacharias and Elizabeth had finally stopped praying. They finally given up. We're too old for toddlers. And it's at this time, God sends an angel to say, your prayers are answered. You're going to have a baby. And you will give him the name John. Now, typically, Jewish fathers would name their children, usually after somebody in their family. But in this case, God names him, which shows he's going to have a, a special role in God's plan. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, you understand why Zacharias and Elizabeth would rejoice. But why will many people rejoice at his birth? The angel tells him, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. For the past 500 years, Israel has been under the dominion of foreign powers, Assyria, 
followed by Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Greek, and now by Rome. For, for 500 years, foreign armies have occupied this nation. Now think what that does to your national self-image. You know, we're the doormats of the world. Everybody's conquered us. But if you were to ask a Jew, why is this happening? They would not have pointed to military or economic matters. They would point to spiritual matters. That the law said that if you depart from God, God will depart from you and allow you to be overrun by foreign powers and you will be ruled by the nations. And so for 500 years, Israel has not been what God wanted them to be. Uh, and so this is great news because God says, if you repent and turn back to me, I'll turn back to you. And that's why you'll, you'll see from time to time, people in Luke say they were waiting for the kingdom of God. What were they waiting for? They were waiting for the prophesied time when God would be the king of the, world, king of the nation again. Because the people had repented and turned back to him, so he turned to them, rules the world through Jerusalem, through his Messiah, and brings all the great blessings of the new age upon, upon Israel. Well, now the angel says all this is about to begin, that the birth of John will be the, the first pebble in a great avalanche because God, because God will send uh, John to turn the people back to him uh, and to make a people prepared for the Lord. So God is on the move. Now, the, the, uh, the description that the angel gives was stagger. Uh, uh, pious, you like like, like Zacharias. First of all, he says, your son will be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus, in fact, said that John was the greatest Old Testament prophet to ever live. No one has risen greater than John, he says in Luke 7, 28. Plus, he'll be a man of extraordinary uh, self-discipline. When Zacharias hears that he will drink no wine or liquor, he didn't heave a sigh of relief. Oh, good, this son won't be an alcoholic. It means his son will be specially concentrated to God. The Old Testament didn't speak against wine and liquor. And the priests, only in those, that two-week period of service in their life, couldn't drink. But the fact that, that, that John will not drink 24-7 means he will be unusually consecrated to God. Plus, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came and went. He would rest on somebody, speak to them, and then he would leave. Yet John will be filled with the Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb before he's even been born. And we'll talk more about that later. Not only does he have uh, an extraordinary, is he an extraordinary man, he'll have an extraordinary mission. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. His message will be one of repentance. Turning God's people back so that God can restore them. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Turning back to the Lord affects our horizontal relationships as well as our vertical relationship. God is love. And you cannot have a good relationship with God and have a bad relationship with, with, uh, with people. And so John will come to turn people's hearts back to their children and the children back to the parents, as well as all the people back to the Lord. Now, 
Zacharias is a man of the word, and he would understand this passage that the, that the angel quotes as coming from Malachi. 400 years before this, the last time they heard from God. That Malachi 4.1 says, or 4, 5 through 6 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And earlier in Malachi 3, God promises, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So the last time God spoke and now the next time God speak, it's like it not, there was no 400 years. It's just bam. God is still giving the same message. That's what happens here. So think about the impact that makes on old Zacharias. The baby you gave up on that you thought you would never have, you're going to have him. And not only are you going to have him, but he'll be the greatest prophet and will begin to restore Israel back to God. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Are you sure you got the right address? Are you sure this message was for me? I mean, we're old. We can't have a kid. How, how will I know this is really going to happen? You ever say that to God? If this is really you, give me a sign. Angel says, okay. The angel answered, said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been spent, sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. How will you know for sure? Well, take, how about this? How about I'm giving you the best news you could get, but you can't tell anybody because you won't be able to talk until he's born. How's that for a sign? <laughs> Moving on. Is there a, a slide after this one? Aha, thank you. The people were waiting for Zacharias, were wondering at his delay. The, the priests were typically in the holy place for a very short time. Because if they delayed, people would begin to worry that God had struck them dead by some, because of some sin. And so they're getting nervous now. Where is he? He should be out here by now. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. First vision anybody has seen for 400 years. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. God gives Elizabeth and Zacharias a son to take away her disgrace because of his great goodness, but it fits into his overall plan. And that's a great illustration of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be given to you. Is As we seek God's greater interest, God takes care of our interests. That's the idea. 
Well, that's the story. So what do we learn from that? I want to bring two lessons I think we can learn from the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth as, as God, after years of silence, makes himself apparent. And, and the first lesson is that God uses people with a track record of faithfulness. God uses people with a track record of faithfulness. Remember, Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And as God looks for a family to raise the greatest prophet in history, he chooses them because of their routine obedience. They have been faithful for years to walk with God. You ever wonder why God doesn't use you more? You ever ask him, God, why? I'm, here I am. Why aren't, are you? I think it's because we haven't been faithful in what he gave us to do yet. Jesus says in Luke 16, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And he who is unfaithful with little will be unfaithful with much. As, as 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Who does God favor? People who, who belong to him, people who trust him, people who obey him. And so if God is not active in my life, if God is not using me more, if God is not doing the things I'd like him to do, the place to start is, well, have I been faithful with the things he's given me? Now, it took me a long time to learn this because I made the mistake of thinking as a younger Christian, Christ has died for all my sins. That past, present, and future, they were all dealt with at the cross. I'm going to heaven. So how I live my daily life doesn't really matter that much to God. And as a result, it took me a long time to, re to realize that God favors the obedience. God blesses obedience. Look at uh, Romans 8 here. Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation do you deserve? How much condemnation are you getting? No, none. None. When God looks at you in Christ, you are completely acceptable to him. He couldn't love you any more than he does. You couldn't be any more righteous or any pure. That's what he means when he says, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Let's stop there. Paul has shown that there was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with us. We just couldn't obey it. Weak as it was through our own weak efforts, we are slaves to sin, and so we couldn't obey the law. In a sense, Christianity is the most pessimistic faith in the world because it basically says you can't please God. You can't obey God. You're a slave to sin. You need a savior, which is the good news. We couldn't save ourselves, but God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus became a man, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? 
so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with me. So grace doesn't make obedience unnecessary. Grace makes obedience possible. As the spirit of the Lord gives me the power and the desire to obey him and experience the blessings that are promised for those who obey God. Remember Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, of, of the wicked. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which bears his fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither, and everything he does, he prospers. How would you like that to be said of you? Everything they do, they prosper. Why? Because they're favored by God, because they take his law seriously. And James says the same exact thing in James 1, when he says, Prove yourselves to be doers of the law and not hearers who delude themselves. For the doer of the law will be blessed in everything he does. God, nothing wrong with the law. The law is great. God's commands are to give us life. And God gives us the ability to do that through his spirit. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Uh, do not be deceived, brethren. For God is not mocked. Everyone who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. He who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life and peace. We choose the quality of our lives. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All sin can pay off is death. Big sins result in? Medium-sized sins result in? Tiny little sins that nobody knows about result in? Exactly. So that means there's no safe sins, right? And so that's what Paul is saying, is that you will reap what you sow. He's given you the power to obey him. So obey him and you'll reap life. Look at it this way. Death is simply the ruin that comes from being separated from God, separated from God's blessing, separated from God's wisdom, from his power, from his peace, all these things. Now, if I criticize my, my kids, I try to control them, I'm, I'm just a nasty father. They won't love me any more than a non-Christian's kids would love him if he treated them that way, right? Even though I'm a Christian. If I abuse my body with drugs or alcohol or bad food, I'll be just as unhealthy as a non-believer who does that, right? Because the wages of sin is death. If I give my heart to my job and live to make money, my life will be just as empty and frustrating as the non-believer who does that because the wages of sin is death, right? If I'm neurotic and self-absorbed, I won't have any more friends than my non-Christian who does the same thing because the wages of sin is death. The good news of the gospel is that Christ comes and lives in us and gives us the power to obey and be blessed by God. 
As a young Christian, I endured so much mental turmoil and lack of peace and frustration, anxiety, fear, and worry because I refused to conquer my old sins. I just let them run rampant in my life. But I found over time that as I began to read my Bible and began to, to pray more and began to obey God, my life became happier and more wholesome and at peace. That doesn't mean you don't suffer, but that means at the bottom of it all, there is a deep contentment and joy. You just know the blessing of God. And that's the kind of person God blesses. God blesses the person who has developed a track record of obedience. So the question I guess you'd have to ask is, where do I need to become obedient as a habit of life? Um, maybe it's reading your Bible. Start there. Just start today. Read today. Just, that's all you do. Just today. All you have to do is today. Ten minutes, that's fine. Do today. And then tomorrow, do the same thing. So 10 minutes, prayer, maybe some area of obedience, uh, whatever it is, but just start living one day at a time and say, I'm going to do it today. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to do it today. And what you'll find is it not only becomes a habit of life you can't do without, but your life begins to change. And God becomes much more of a reality, and you have peace and joy, and God begins using you in other people's lives because you've been faithful. That's the first thing we learn. God looks for people with a track record of obedience to bless and show himself strong for. And that's why he picks this little old couple that nobody knows anything about to raise his most famous prophet. That makes sense? Now here's the other lesson I, I would pick out of this. And that is that the test of routine faithfulness is faith in the moment of truth. Which Zacharias fails, by the way. Because an angel appears to him and says, good news, here's what's going to happen. He says, I don't know. I don't know. You see, your devotional habits, the things you do for God, the, the things you do in seeking God, that's just a means. The end is to believe God in the moment you need to believe him. I've been swimming for years, and um, just about every week I'll do some set as a test to see if I'm improving, to see if I'm getting better. And if I don't pass the test, I realize I've got to change my training right now because I'm not progressing, I'm staying the same. In the same way, God tests our faith because untested faith isn't real faith. And our faith grows by being tested. And so the question is, how are you doing on the tests of faith? Zacharias has his faith tested when the angel of the Lord, when Gabriel appears to him. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that if I saw an angel and the angel spoke to me, I wouldn't have any trouble believing him. That's not true. Because the ability to trust God goes far beyond your intellect. Let me give you an example. Um, when Lori and I were dating, um, I, I, I wasn't going to make a move till I knew this was from God because I'd made so many mistakes. And uh, I'd jump ahead and then God'd say, not that one. 
So I was just going to, so I, I made a list of how would I know that Lori was the right woman for me. And I, I went to the Bible to do that. And I also went how God had moved in my life before. And I, and I, I made a list of, I think there were 10, 10 things on my list. And, and I figured, I'll pray that God will do these if he wants us to get married. And maybe in a year or so, I'll be able to look back on my list and say, yeah, God did it. So I can, I can kind of begin to pursue her or nothing will happen. I'll know I, wouldn't, I didn't make a mistake. Well, to my surprise, every one of those 10 was answered within two weeks after I prayed it. And not only that, but God had moved so obviously and had spoken to me. Um, and there's only been one other time where I felt like God really spoke to me clearly, and this was one of them. And ba- by, basically, it came as a rebuke. He said, you are so unbelieving. You need to commit yourself to her and trust me. <laughs> and I was so excited. I was so excited. So I, I, I said, I, I really believe God is leading, me to, leading us to get married. Will you marry me? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> and she had her own journey to go through. But it's a wonderful story, isn't it? I didn't know because as soon as she said yes, I had this incredible feeling of fear. And, and just I was panicked. And that feeling of fear didn't go away for a year until after we'd been married for three weeks. I knew intellectually that God had spoken to me. But there were fears below my intellect. There were things that were going on because of my background that I was so afraid of a lack of certainty, so afraid of committing myself wholly to one person, so afraid of so many things. I didn't know what I was afraid of. All I knew was I'm afraid. And that was a time that God took me through, walking by faith, having to choose day by day by day, which burned so much stuff out of me. So since we got married, and, and by the way, it was the best decision I ever made, and, and uh, just see her as the greatest blessing of God in my life, I've never had trouble making decisions since. And because I know if God got me through that, he'll get me through anything. Does that make sense? All of us have tests of faith, right? Sometimes there are little tests of faith, like you get mad every time you're out driving on the freeway. Right? Or, or you cannot forgive that person who's offended you and doesn't even know they offended you. Or every time there's more month than there is money, you panic. You know, there's, those are things like that. Other times there's big tests of faith, like serious illness for you, or worse, serious illness for a member of your family. But a test of faith is always God says this. Will I believe what God says? Will I believe my feelings? Well, I believe my intellect. And it's only by passing those tests, by saying, I believe God, I'm going to trust you that my faith grows. God proves himself to be just that way, and we move on. But if your if you're daily disciplines, your daily habits with God are not resulting in being able to pass the tests of faith you're facing, You need to go back to the drawing board and find out why. Because God is making us people of faith. The righteous shall live by faith, right? Does that make sense? What I want to do now is end in prayer. And I want you to take a minute or two to think about, one, what is the most common test of faith 
I face. Where is my faith tested the most? Not the most, but most often. Does that make sense? And then what would trusting God uh, mean in that, in that situation? So pray about that, see what you come up with, and then we'll close in, in the last song.
benediction comes from Brother Peter. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 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 Have a good day.